Support comes from Adelaide Interiors. Their design team can expertly manage every detail of your renovation and remodeling project from start to finish. From bathrooms to kitchens, appliances, cabinets, countertops, flooring, and coverings. More at Adelaide.com. Support for The Zest comes from People's Gas, delivering clean, efficient, and affordable natural gas for cooking at home with precise temperature control. More at floridasenergy.com. We're doing things with, you know, wild pigs in Florida where there's a million invasive pigs. They're a problem. They're causing all kind of problems on environmentally sensitive lands and neighborhoods and golf courses. But it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to take lemons and make limoncella. I'm Robin Sessingham, and this is The Zest, citrus, seafood, Spanish flavor, and southern charm. The Zest celebrates cuisine and community in the Sunshine State. launched The Zest in May of this year, and we've learned so much and met so many interesting people. And now that we're ready for the check for our 2019 Florida food experience, we want to replay some of our favorite moments. Support for The Zest podcast comes from Seitenbacher brand natural foods like muesli cereals, oils, oatmeal, energy bars, gluten-free fruit gummies for the kids, organic coffee, and more. Available in supermarkets, health food stores, or online at seitenbacher.com. Best-selling author Rick Bragg was in town earlier this year to talk about his most recent memoir about his family and about growing up poor in the hard-scrabble backcountry of Alabama. He tells it through stories of food and the importance of a good meal in lives full of backbreaking labor and few pleasures. His book, The Best Cook in the World, Tales from My Mama's Southern Table, is also a loving tribute to his mother, Margaret. The timing on this, I really didn't have much to say about it. My mom got sick, and uh, she had cancer, and she, we liked to lost her. And one day, I just asked her, hey, where's that recipe for, I think it was beef short ribs or something like that. And she said, well, hon, I've never written down a recipe. And it occurred to me that, you know, every bit of cooking she'd ever done in her life was with, you know, with ghosts. And every recipe had this great story behind it, where it came from, how it was learned. Uh, And sometimes that was, you know, that itself was sometimes bloody or violent or hilarious. And you really got at her character and your grandmother's character and your great-grandfather's character by the way they were with food and the way they were in the kitchen. Well, that was kind of the joy in it. to, to to get those stories, and I've been talking about my people for, you know, for a long time, for 25 years. It's, it's always amazed me that you could have a bestseller writing about poor mountain people in the Deep South. But this was a chance to, to dig back a little bit further after Reconstruction, before the Great Depression. And where does this stuff come from? And, and what about the character of the people who cooked it? And, you know, a lot of the things my great-grandfather cooked, uh, Jimmy Jim Bundrum, were, let's face it, they were stolen. 
And if he hadn't been larcenous, they wouldn't have had that food to eat. He stole chickens and hogs and and uh, stole one cow that we know of, let it out onto a railroad trestle to perish, which is not kind, but it did result in some very good beef short ribs, I am told. So This was during the Depression. Yeah. You know, they hadn't had beef in years. I guess stealing a cow in order to provide that was more or less forgivable. But it gave me a chance to explore their character a bit, their hard-headedness and their, their oddities, maybe. Do you think there's one recipe in here that will catch on or one that is your favorite? Chocolate pie. Uh, fried pies, anything sweet people tend to, to gravitate toward. But but my favorite recipes in the book are things that I just don't get anymore. Um, for breakfast, biscuits and sliced fried potatoes with two fried eggs and sausage and bacon or sausage or bacon. Um you can't go buy that in a restaurant and have it taste. Or there's a recipe for diced tomato. We call it red-eye gravy uh, over diced tomatoes and a biscuit. That's I only get that during tomato season in my mama's kitchen. Rick Bragg, thank you so much for being with me today. Oh, this, is, this is truly my pleasure, although I am a little bit hungry. That was author Rick Bragg. Well, how can a simple sandwich ignite so much controversy? When it's the Cuban sandwich and we're in Florida, there's a bitter battle for the title of who had it first and who makes it best. Producer Delia Cologne spoke to Andrea Gonsmart-Williams of the Columbia Restaurant, who doesn't think there's any controversy at all. We are probably best known for our Cuban sandwich. This is kind of funny being a fine dining establishment. It's, it's a little controversial. Can you tell us uh, maybe the story behind it? You know, people say it's controversial. In my mind, there's nothing controversial about it. It started here in Tampa. And why I truly feel it began in Tampa is because it's a combination of everyone that immigrated to Ybor City in the turn of the century. You have your Cuban bread, which represents the Cubans, and you've got your ham, which represents the Spaniards. Then you go to your pork, which represents your Cubans again. Then you have salami, which is the Italians, and the pickles and the mustards, which represent the Germans. Oh, and the Swiss cheese, which I always joke is the melting of all of these different cultures coming together. And so in one sandwich, you have a glimpse as to what Ybor City looked like at the turn of the century. So, I mean, I guess what makes it so controversial is Miami wants to stake it for theirs. There's two different differences between the Tampa Cuban and the Miami Cuban. Number one, our bread is far better. We use traditional Cuban bread. Cuban bread doesn't taste as good as it does here in Ybor City. And people joke it's because of the water. There's something in the water that makes the bread taste so great. Something that makes it also different is that Miami doesn't use the salami, which the salami gives it that extra little kick to it. And once again, that's evidence that the Cuban sandwich was founded here in Ybor City. Tell me about the bread. We have been buying our bread from La Segunda Central Bakery, which is also here in Ybor City, for over a century now. So they are almost as old as we are. And it is the only Cuban bread we have ever used, and it will hopefully be the only Cuban bread we will ever use. What we do here, we actually roast our own pork. We roast our own ham, which is sugar glazed. We use Genoa salami, which has the peppercorns in it, which is my father feels is really important 
Swiss cheese, yellow mustard, no mayo around here or lettuce and tomato, and of course the pickle. So when you start building your sandwich, you start with about a nine inch piece of Cuban bread and you start layering it from the bottom up. And it's important that you layer in a particular order so that way it hits your palate just right. My father can literally bite into a Cuban sandwich and say, it's not layered right. So you start with your ham. So we've got our ham. Then we're gonna go to our roast pork and put that on as an even layer once again. And then we're gonna do our Genoa salami that's got the peppercorns in it. And there is that cheese, the Swiss cheese that we said is like the melting pot of it all. We're going to top the top piece of the bread with mustard. You don't do both sides because otherwise your mustard is gonna become overwhelming. I noticed you didn't do the bottom and I was a little skeptical, but I'm like, hey, this is your journey. I'm just going on it with you. <laughs> I've done this a couple times, trust me. And that is how you build the Cuban sandwich, at which point then we would brush it with butter and put it on the press and you press it until it's crispy. But of course, some people like it eating it cold. Okay, so you're brushing it with butter? Butter. Um, for years, we actually didn't do this step. And then after my father did some research and he wanted to make us have the best Cuban sandwich in Florida, he realized this is something that they used to always do. All right, she's putting it in the press. So now, when you cut your Cuban sandwich, you cut it on a diagonal. And some people say, well, why do you cut it on the diagonal? It's so that first bite's so easy. You just point it right into your mouth. Delicious. <laughs> it's delicious. Dalia was speaking to Andrea Gonsmart-Williams of the Columbia Restaurant. You'll find the Columbia's Cuban sandwich recipe on our website, thezestpodcast.com. When Dan Bavaro packed up his wife and kids to move from New Jersey to Florida, he did not have his sights set on opening a New York-style pizzeria. Instead, Bavaro's Pizza serves up Neapolitan-style pies, bringing a taste of Italy to its four Tampa Bay locations. He took Dalia through the process. So Neapolitan pizza dates back to the 1800s, and that's famous for the margarita pizza. When uh, Queen Margarita visited Naples, the pizzeria that they visited, the Ferrara family actually built that oven. So this is the great-grandson of Stefano Ferrara. So this family is known worldwide for building these ovens. Why it's so hot is because we cook temperatures of about 850, 900 degrees. Okay, so I can't do this at home. You could do it at home if you, if you, if you trip your, your, uh, your home oven so you could cook on the clean cycle, but I wouldn't recommend that. <laughs> yeah. That's no, actually I... how I started 12 years ago, two years before we opened the restaurant. I would practice at the house and I was able to uh, rig the oven so that I could cook at 800, 850, because that's how hot your oven gets to clean. So you mentioned that you were getting started. Let's go back. How did you get into all of this? Did you grow up making pizza? No, I wasn't in the restaurant business at all. I left school, and uh, my mentor was in the catering business. We would cater movie sets. So we would go on with food trucks, movie sets in New York City, and we would cater the celebrities and the extras, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. So that was my introduction to food. Uh, shortly after that, about a year with him, he had sold off his business and uh, he helped me get into the transportation business. So we would chauffeur executives and movie stars in New York City 
I did that for like nine years, sold that business, wanted to get back into food, wanted to do pizza, didn't want to do like slices and New York style. I wanted something that had a little bit more passion and history. So I stumbled upon Neapolitan pizza after doing some research. There were only two in the United States at that time. One of them was in Manhattan. So I honed in on that, met the owner, spoke with the chef there and just kind of learned a little bit from him and then just did my own studies. Went to Italy, learned more, stayed with the Ferrara family, stayed with the Caputo family that we bring out. That's another hundred year old company, the flour mill that we buy from and spent like two years developing this concept. Wow, you said you did not want to do New York pizza. That's surprising. You're from New Jersey? Jersey, yeah. What was wrong with New York pizza? I thought that was what everybody wanted. Every corner, like in the United States, is a New York pizza. At, when we opened Bavaro's in Tampa, we were one of the first 15 tr traditional Neapolitan pizzerias in the United States. Let's taste what this is all about. Um, can you walk me through... What are we going to make today? Sure. So let's start with the dough. So you got some history on the oven. It's a hundred year old oven. Cooks at uh, 850, say 900 degrees. Pizza's baking 90 seconds. 90 seconds? 90 seconds. So that dough that can survive in that type of heat has to be a special type of dough. We use a hundred year old yeast culture. How's that Na possible? From, from Naples, Italy. So a yeast culture is a, uh, like a sourdough starter, if you're familiar with baking. So you say, start your day with X amount in the tub and you feed it flour and water and there's live organisms on the inside. So after you feed it, it kind of expands. And when it expands at the highest point, you use that to make your dough. So this strain of yeast dates back a hundred years to a bakery in Italy. Wow, that's beautiful. And so simple, just sauce, a little bit of cheese and some basil, that's yeah. it. That's it, that's the tradition. But as you can see, it resembles the Italian flag. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. So Queen yeah, yeah. Margarita comes to Naples in the 1800s. There's this famous uh, pizzaiola, which is male pizza chef, wants to create a pizza for the queen. He designs this pizza, red, white, and green, based on the Italian flag. Red sauce, white cheese, green basil, and named it after her. And since then, that is the start of the margarita pizza. That was Dan Bavaro speaking to Delia Cologne. What was once a vacant lot is now an urban oasis. We take you to the St. Petersburg Eco Village, a community garden whose mission is to reconnect people with nature. Delia surveys the bounty with Emmanuel Rue, a longtime restaurateur who's using his food knowledge to educate the public about nutrition. So this is the farm. This is the farm, 15th Street Farm in St. Petersburg, in the heart of St. Pete. You really are in the heart of St. Pete, and I honestly drove around the block several times going, where is this place? And then here it is. It's like an oasis in the desert. Describe where we are, how large is the property. Paint a picture for me. Originally, nine years ago, it was uh, a vacant lot. And because they couldn't make a parking lot for Tropicana Field, the city wouldn't allow it, uh, we turned it into an urban farm. And we've uh, brought in a lot of yard waste from the city, composted yard waste. We've brought in about 300 tons. So we are recycling waste from the city and making very healthy soil. And we're growing vegetables. And it is our main mission is to be an educational resource for the community. But we're also uh, in the process of building an events barn with a commercial kitchen and we're going to have some cooking classes, field to fork dinners 
and nutrition classes. And what we do is uh, tasting tours of the garden, and people are blown away by the number of different flavors and textures from the vegetables that they experience over 30 or 50 feet because uh, we grow a lot of things that people are not used to finding in the supermarket. Can we walk and talk? Absolutely. Okay. So here we have shishito peppers, and the shishito peppers are absolutely wonderful grilled in a cast iron pan or on a grill with a little bit of olive oil. After you take them off the grill, you add a little bit of olive oil, salt and pepper, maybe a little bit of parmesan or a little sriracha sauce, and it is an absolute treat. I like that right off the bat with the cooking tips. Okay, let's <laughs> let's keep going. And, and the fresher they are, the better they are. It doesn't get any fresher than this. No, that's right. And behind you, we have some collards. Next to you... Whoa, can we just stop on the collards? The collards are like half my height. How do you get everything so robust? We don't do it. Mother Nature does it. Here, we don't grow vegetables. We take care of the soil. And nature grows the vegetables. Give me some tips for taking care of the soil because I try to grow stuff at home and it does not come out like this. What am I doing wrong? Because in Florida we have a lot of sand and you need to add a lot of organic material and you need to add fungi and uh, bacteria to break it down to make the nutrients available to the plants. For people who want to start something like this in their own neighborhood, what's the first step? If you have a problem with your car, you don't ask volunteers to fix it, or there are consequences. If you want to start an urban farm, you can start with volunteers, but you need some professional help. That was Emmanuel Rue speaking to Delia Cologne. Ed Childs is the son of the late Governor Lawton Childs. He's also the owner of several seafood restaurants, including the Sandbar on Anna Maria Island. Charles's interest in local and sustainable food sourcing has led him to experiment with cooking one of the state's invasive species, wild hogs. I spoke to him about some of the ways that his restaurant's chefs have been utilizing wild boars from Shogun Farms. We're doing things with, you know, wild pigs in Florida where there's a million invasive pigs. They're a problem. They're causing all kinds of problems on environmentally sensitive lands and neighborhoods and golf courses. But it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to take lemons and make limoncella because wild pig meat is fabulous. All right. The pigs came from Spain in 1539 in May with Hernando de Soto, and they were two-toed black Iberian pigs, which are the finest pigs in the world. So that's the strain we've got. Wait, that's the wild hogs that you the see? The first right? wild hogs. The first 13 pigs that came to Florida came with the Spanish. There was no domestic pigs. The Europeans hadn't gotten here yet. Some of those pigs got out. The, the domestic pigs came. There was hanky-panky going on. The Russian boars came over on the land bridge little bit more intermixing, but our pigs, our wild pigs, that one million that are a problem in Florida have Iberian blood in them. And we've got a guy that is doing a new model for this, that is doing things with uh, these wild pigs by holding them for 60 days and finishing them on acorns. 
The finest ham in the world is Iberico Berlata. Berlata means acorns. That's a free-range Iberian pig that eats acorns. Our pigs are eating acorns. So he's finishing those for 60 days, putting 25 pounds of that beautiful white fat on them, right? And we've just gotten it. We're playing with it. And the things our chefs are doing and their excitement level with it is off the chart. Really? Terrines, How? Gallatins, uh, wild pig braises. How are they? Ca- I know people kill the pigs. They go out and hunt them, the wild pigs, well, wild boars. People, yeah, but like, how do you catch it in order to finish it, to yeah, fatten it up? Well, that's one of the most exciting things you'll ever do if you're a hunter because you go out and you, uh, and you catch them with um, – they run them with dogs and the dogs catch them. And then, uh, and then they bring them back alive, right? So the dogs will just grab them and hold them until the cowboys come, and they put the pig in a pen and bring it to wherever it's going. Now, you know, a lot of people then, too, you don't want to take that pig then because that pig is all amped up. These pigs are going back, and they're sitting around for 60 days having a very nice time, eating a smorgasbord, being treated very well. Are they breeding them at all during that time? or? Well, they are breeding because they're pigs, and there's boy pigs and girl pigs, and there's little pigs running around. Yeah. Oh, so yeah. where is this that you're talking about? Where is this facility? It, it's called Shogun Farm, and it's in uh, Sefner, Florida. Okay. And then are you buying from them, and your chefs are making dishes from this? Yes, ma'am. What are they making? Well, one of the first things they did was a porchetta. Uh, they're making galatines with this. They're making head cheese that's wrapped in bok choy from the farm. Seems like they'd be too tough and gamey. That's a that is really a um, it's a misconception. Wild game is not gamey unless you haven't treated it right. If you shoot the right animal, that's where it starts, right? And then the most important part is cook it right. If you overcook it, you are done. You are gray. You are tough. Uh, unless you're going to stew it or braise it. Cook it, marinate it with fresh herbs and garlic, and cook it rare on your grill quickly. You can always put it back on and slice it across the grain, and it's so good it'll make you slap your grandmother. That was restaurant owner Ed Childs. Speaking of hogs, many well-known local restaurants swear by the sausages they get from the Tambuzo Sausage Company of Tampa. The butchery recently opened up its new location in West Tampa, alongside the company's cafe, The Boozy Pig. Owner Andrew Tambuzo says it's a new chapter in what's been a very old tradition for his family in Ybor City. He spoke with me in front of The Boozy Pig on Cypress Street about changes in his new neighborhood and his business. Midtown's going to be right right down the street. We're really uh, excited about that. Yeah, so you can already feel South Tampa moving this way. We've been getting a lot of traffic from downtown as well. So, Andrew Tambuzo, why do you love sausage? <laughs> uh, it's something that I grew up doing. Um, I grew up making sausage. It's, it was something that I never questioned why we did it because I had been doing it for so long. It's your, in your family? It is in my, on both sides. On my mom's side... Um, my mom's family, the Ketchatoris on Ar- Armenia, um, Ketchatorian sons. I grew up in that grocery store making sausage as a kid. And then my grandfather on my father's side, Joe Tambuzo, he was the one that actually showed me how to make sausage. Uh, we still have all of his equipment in, in my shop on display. Uh, it's Like I said, it's just something that it was always a family hobby, passion, turned into 
something I was doing in my dad's garage. And was your dad in it too? Uh, oh yeah, yeah. My dad. I would not be here today without all my dad's help. Making sausage has always been part of something that we did. Um, my grandfather. It was passed down from an older generation. From him, his uncle gave him the re a recipe that he in turn gave us. So cacciatore, I think, means hunter in Italian. What does what does tambuzo mean? Tambuzo. I don't know. I don't know Leave either. That part out. <laughs> that's okay. People call you boozy. People call me boozo or boozy. Uh, it's his name that's been called that forever. Just kind of stuck. Yeah. Once I started processing, it just kind of the name kind of came to me one day. I was like, hey, I like that name. So what's your background? Born and raised in Tampa, um, Sicilian and Cuban heritage. Uh, my parents are both from Ybor City. Uh, grew up in West Tampa and Seminole Heights my entire life, and um, just lucky to own a business now in, in West Tampa. Yeah, so you have had a, you've had a business called Tambuzo Sausage for, mm -hmm. for a while. Yes. Um, and then you just opened up the Boozy Pig, yes. the retail outlet, right. uh, just a few months ago. Tell What's the difference between the two? The main difference is uh, that host Tambuzo Sausage Company is how we sell to restaurants, and Boozy Pig is our local storefront. But that's how we started out, uh, just making sausages. It was, um, we had customers that were my grandfather's longtime customers. Their descendants would call us up, hey, you guys still making sausage? And we were out of my dad's house in the garage. And before you knew it, we had just business coming to the house to pick up sausage. Any kind of special licenses you need to make sausage in your garage? No, I don't think they would give me one, honestly. Uh, I wouldn't, wouldn't even try. Um, I could probably get laughed at. But uh, no, it was just, it wasn't really ever intended to be my full-time job. It kind of happened that way. Uh, we started processing a lot of wild game for hunters. And we started, I had a friend of mine that got uh, promoted to chef position. And they knew, she knew that we were making sausage. And she started buying sausage from us. And it was a great opportunity. Um, and then word spread. And just now I think we sell to about 10 or 11 different restaurants around town. That was Andrew Tambuzo, owner of the Tambuzo Sausage Company. When Isabel Lasik's daughter left for college, she told her mom that the thing she'd missed most was their Sunday dinners. Eight years later, the Dunedin mother of four is the force behind Hashtag Sunday Supper, a weekly virtual dinner party where foodies share recipes and inspiration for family meals. Lasig, also known as Family Foodie, reaches millions of people through social media, promoting her Sunday supper movement. Speaking to Delia, Lasig explained how families can start their own traditions. So much has changed in the last eight years. It's grown in leaps and bounds, and um, it has gone in different directions. But at the heart of it all is still our mission is, you know, to bring families together around the Sunday supper table. And we feel that if you start off as one day a week, it quickly becomes a way of life because you start seeing the benefits, not just in the food that you eat, but how your family's interacting and how it's fun to spend time together. Why Sunday dinner? <laughs> Well, Sunday is the day, right, that you're regrouping. It's a little bit slower. And the whole goal is to really just get the family around the table. But 
Sunday just seems to be the perfect day. It's a great start to the week. You have a little bit more time. The kids are almost always home. You're not running off to football practice, soccer practice. So I just really felt that Sunday is the perfect day, you know, to have the family come together. What was your childhood like? Did you have those Sunday dinners? What memories do you have? Okay, so I am an only child. And not only am I an only child, I am an immigrant. And my parents had no one else in this country. So it was really just the three of us the entire time growing up. All my cousins were back in Portugal. And so I think that was part of it was that I so wanted, first of all, a large family. I, you know, I knew since the time I was nine years old, my mom said to me, you know, how many kids do you think you have? I said, oh, I'm going to have four. <laughs> and she so, she's like, oh, just wait till you have one. You're going to see how much work it is. You're not going to have four. And of course, the day that Riley was born, my fourth, she's like, darn it, if you weren't going to prove me <laughs> wrong. <laughs> so m- growing up, you know, my childhood was very different than my children's childhood. But I so wanted that sense of family and everyone being home because, you know, listen, my parents came here as immigrants. They were here to work. So again, you know, we did have our meals always. My mom cooked dinner just about every night, but it was a very different environment, you know, and I I have no regrets. I mean, it was a great childhood, but very, very different. I was a latchkey kid, I, you know. <laughs> so I think At the heart of it all, I really wanted that for my family. And then so I think it became, because I was so passionate about it, it became so easy for me to share that part of me with my followers as we grew. Now, what does your Sunday supper at home look like these days? (laughs) I have three football players and my husband's a football coach during football season, It's rare that on a Sunday we will sit at the kitchen table because we are in front of that TV. But one of our absolute favorites, probably the number one that all my kids and their friends will say is pepperoni pizza dip. So we make, you know, pepperoni pizza dip. We know that it's a football Sunday. We just really enjoy that. You know, keep it simple. Grilling or sheet pan dinners that, you know, one process and the entire meal is done. That's super important for busy families. That was Isabel Lasik speaking to Dalia Cologne. Thanks so much for joining us and have a very happy new year. For more Florida food stories, subscribe for free to The Zest. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts or at thezestpodcast.com. I'm Robin Sessingham. Dalia Cologne and I produce The Zest with help from Megan Trimble, Mark Hayes, and Craig George. The Zest is a production of WUSF Public Media.